0: It reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who persevere under trials because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the lord has promised to those who love him beloved this is the word of the lord
1: well if you uh, have your bibles it'd be good if you kept it open there we're working our way through through that text let's just bow in a moment and ask for god's help father we Uh, do recognize indeed that apart from you we can do nothing, whether it be for the speaker, for those who hear. And so we ask for a very special sense of your presence this morning and your blessing that this word would fall on good soil, a soil that will bear fruit. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. There's a very well-known preacher who says that... um, says to his students, he says, when you're preaching on a text, look for the drama. Look for the drama in the text and preach it. And uh, I think you'll agree as you look at the opening verses of the book of James, there's drama there. There's drama there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, he's speaking to Christians whenever you face trials of many kinds. Whenever. Whenever. Whatever the trial of many kinds, count it Pure joy or nothing but joy. Wow. As Simon said in his introductory comments this morning, those two words, trials and joy, rarely occur in the same sentence. But that is the sentiment, the response that James requires of us as we face trials of many kinds. James doesn't need to explain to his readers why this happens. He knows this to be the standard Christian experience. I don't know many of you. To some, you're just the face. But I know that you're a believer. You're not spared trials. and I'm, Perhaps this morning I'm speaking to someone that's going through a trial of great difficulty. Maybe trials of many kinds, and so this I pray will be a word in season. When I speak of joy, when when James speaks of pure joy, what comes to mind? Perhaps you think of joy and gladness, and there's no doubt that uh, joy has some uh, some some affinity with those with 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 those kinds of sentiments. But one writer points out that it refers more to a positive state of being. Then to an emotion, a positive state of mind. James points out that it's a result of a choice. Consider it, he said, consider it pure joy. Make a deliberate and conscious choice to find joy in your trials. That's not the natural response. One writer says this, it is not intuitive that trials should cause joy. So James asks his readers to make a deliberate effort to set aside their natural inclinations of fear, discouragement, anger, and choose to be joyful in the midst of trials. It's not a natural emotional response So we need to make a conscious decision. The question, of course, arises then, how how can trials and joy coexist if it's so contrary to human nature? And James points out that it begins by understanding that God has a glorious purpose in your trials. You see, my friends, it's not the trials themselves, but knowing God's purpose in trials That generates joy look with me at chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 of our text James says this he says consider it pure joy because you know you see it's dependent on knowing this you know one of the one of the the, um, jobs of a preacher is to remind God's people of certain things that they know I'm not going to say anything new to you today. Something that I haven't said before, Simon hasn't preached. But what I'm going to do, perhaps if you're going through trials and hardships, is to remind you of these things. Remember this, don't forget this, because my friends, that's what trials tend to do. So it's knowing, it's knowing that God has a purpose, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God uses trials to test your faith. If you know anything about the book of James, you know that there's such a thing as living, saving faith and dead faith that's useless. Not everyone that professes to be a Christian possesses true spiritual life. We are very conscious, we're very familiar with the concept of nominalism. People that name Christ as their Savior, but in fact don't truly know you. Jesus says in the well known parable of the so, he says in chapter th- Matthew 13 if you fall away because of trials, your faith is not a life giving faith. One one commentator says this He says, There's no more important no more subtle test of our profession of the Christian faith than the way we react to trials in this world. You know, my friends, I see, I see the hand of God in this, God's mercy. God sends trials amongst other reasons to test our faith, whether it be a true faith, a living faith, Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says many will come to me on that day and say Lord Lord did we not did we not know you did we not do these things and you'll say depart from me you wicked people I never knew but Lord 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 oh my friends can you imagine how horrific that must be to stand before God on judgment day And to find out for the first time that you're not right with him. And so God mercifully sends trials our way to test our faith. To test our faith, whether it be true faith. And those who persevere pass the test of faith. And through their steadfastness, they become spiritually mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is saying it's knowing these things, it's understanding these things that they come from the hand of God to test our faith and to mature it. It is that knowledge that generates pure joy. The Greek term for mature is translated in Matthew 5.48 as perfect, where Jesus calls his followers to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the context of that sermon, it's to be like God, It's to be godly. It's to manifest the godly character. That's what God is doing when he sends trials, when we go through trials of many kinds, is that we would burn away all the impurities in our lives and become far more godly. Complete has connotations, according to one lexicon, of being a person of integrity, blameless, with no obvious flaws. Someone who very obviously outwardly a Christian these outcomes I'm quoting from a commentator or fruits are produced by holding fast to the faith through the trials of life as the impurities in one's character are burned off if this is the end result of a believer's trials difficult as they may be there is indeed something to rejoice about do you want to grow as a Christian Do you want to mature? Do you want to become more Christ-like, more godly? Well, says James, it is through trials. One writer says this, a trial is not only to approve your faith, but to improve it. Some of you will know the name Charles Hatton Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. At one point in one of his messages, he testifies, he says, when I look back on my life, and he had many struggles, many hardships, physical and spiritual, he says, when I look back on my life, he says, the number of blessings, good things that have helped me to grow are so few that you can put them on the size of a sixpence. I guess it's like a little ten cents piece today. So few. But he says, the adversities and the struggles and the trials that have matured me, he said, are far too many to list my friends, trials of many kinds are the only sure path to Christian growth and maturity. I wish it were not so. <laughs> Anybody want a trial? Of any takers? You know, I always think of the Apostle Paul when he gets converted, and God, and, and Christ says to him, "You're going to go through many trials and hardships." You know, we always think of Paul, this great, you know, warrior for the Lord, and he was. But right at the outset, God says you're going to go through many trials and hardships. At that point, I would say, well, no, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Send Simon. (laughs) But here's the point, you see. Surely the intense desire of every believer is to grow as a Christian and mature. Therefore, a response of pure joy is entirely appropriate. Do you see the connection? If that is your desire, if that is your goal, it will generate, that knowledge will generate pure joy. Now the commentator says this, The trials of life are meant to make us better, not bitter. Better, not bitter. The second thing that James tells us here is that in the midst of our trials, we are not alone. God makes provision for us. When, not if, you're facing trials, whenever, he assumes, whenever you're facing trials, he says, we can lose sight not only of God's good purpose. We can forget that God's goal and desire is to mature us, but we can also doubt God's presence. Sometimes, if you read through the Psalms, there's a sense in which the psalmist is lamenting the presence of God. God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? Lord, what's going on? Spurgeon again says this He says, Your God has forsaken you, says tribulation. That's the natural response. You're walking a life of obedience. You're having your daily quiet time. You're abiding in the Lord. You're obeying his word. And suddenly you get hit by tribulations. What's the natural response, says Spurgeon? My God has forsaken me. (laughs) My God has left me. But James assures his readers not only of God's presence, but also of God's provision to enable them to mature through trials. My friends, it's not only God's purpose for you to be mature, but that God is going to enable you to mature. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Notice the what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Why do we need wisdom in the midst of trials? We need wisdom to know how best to navigate through these trials. How to respond in a way that that honors God. How best to honor God. Who? Any in need. Any in need. Not just the pastor. You can go straight to God. The how, he gives generously without reproach. You know, if we see the mercy of God, the mercy of God in the testing, I think we see the holiness of God in God maturing us, don't we? God desires that we be holy people, that we be people that are worthy of naming him as father. And I think, my friends, here we glimpse God's goodness. Isn't it true that when you go through trials of many t- kinds, especially when they kind of extend the trials and there's no end in sight, you begin to doubt God's goodness? But notice what he says. He, he says he gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Generously to all without fault. But we must ask, O oh Lord, give me wisdom. Give me understanding. My desire is to grow. My my desire is to mature. Lord, please show me how to respond to these circumstances. If God's purpose is to grow and mature you as a believer, God's wisdom will show you how to do so in the circumstances. My friends, God has never intended you to handle your trials on your own. One writer says, let trials drive you to God, not away from him. If trials drive you away from God, my friends, it's not a good sign. You failed the test of faith. It's interesting, I think, important that in this particular context, James warns his readers against what he calls double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. He's speaking to people in the church, and he recognizes that even within the church, there are people who are double minded. People who value the things of this world as much as the things of the next. People who value material things as much as spiritual things. People with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And so he says this James chapter 1, 6 to 8. But when you ask for wisdom, You must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. We live overlooking the ocean. I live on the college campus in Cork Bay. And uh, I can understand this this imagery that he used. Waves of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Unstable. That's his description of the double-minded man or woman. The doubt mentioned here does not refer to God's willingness to provide wisdom. Will he or won't he? (laughs) If you go to God and say give. He's saying he will give generously to all who ask without finding fault. He's not talking about that. that's not the doubt that he has in mind. Rather the person is in two minds doubtful as to whether or not to follow God's wisdom, God's direction in their circumstances. because to honor God in a particular set of circumstances might be very difficult, might be very costly. And so we draw back and we are double-minded because, my friends, we value comfort in this world more than honoring and pleasing God. This mentality leads to instability, the very opposite of perseverance and steadfastness. And strikingly, significantly, James tells us they will receive nothing from the Lord. Nothing from the Lord. Thirdly, James points out God's promise in the midst of your trials. In the verses that follow, verses 9 through 11, we see God's wisdom on display. Wisdom in the midst of trials. James addresses believers whose trials appear to be related to their economic poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus. If you look at Luke's account of the sermon on that, blessed are the poor. There are people today in the churches that are promising health and wealth if you have enough favor, enough faith with God. If you read James closely, you see that some of his readers were going through great economic trial and difficulty. We would say they were economically deprived. But listen to the wisdom of God here, James 1, 9 to 11. Believers in humble circumstances. Believers in humble circumstances. Humble circumstances. When you look at the way they dress, the food they eat, when you look at the cars they drive, the house they live in, when you look at their lifestyle, there's, there's, there's humble circumstances. He recognizes That that for some Christians, that's their lot. But he says, they ought to take pride in their high position. They might be materially impoverished, but he's saying they are spiritually rich. Riches that are so great that they overshadow any kind of earthly wealth that we might experience. And then he says, verse 10, but the rich... It's interesting, he doesn't talk about rich believers, believers who are rich. Now, I'm not saying that it's sinful to be rich. But he's just talking about the rich. Verse 10, the rich should take pride in their humiliation. You can see the contrast. Since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Again, we can relate to this imagery. If you've even been up the West Coast in spring, you've seen those wonderful wildflowers. Wild but you've got to time it just right. Two weeks too late, what happens? They're gone. What a vivid, striking picture. And James says that's what the rich are like here today, gone tomorrow. The warning against double-mindedness in this context suggests that these believers were being tempted to look to the ways of the world for relief torn between godly and worldly wisdom. God, where are you? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? And so then to look to the ways of the world to material things to money to mammon to solve our problems but James by way of encouragement reminds the materially poor that they're spiritually rich that they have a high position before God what a wonderful picture a high position before God moreover earthly riches provide no guarantees They might promise much, but they don't always deliver. Here today, gone tomorrow, fading away even while they go about their business. They may promise much, but not deliver. Not so with God. Look with me at verse 12 of our text. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test of faith, see, having stood the test of faith, having persevered, my friends, that's the mark of a true saving faith that you persevere through those trials. That is evidence, a demonstration that your faith is a true faith. Jesus says, talked about the parable of the so he says that there are some people they receive the word of God with joy, but when trouble or hardship comes along because of the word, they quickly fall away because they have no root. That person, says James, will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What a promise. And my my friends, unlike the rich, the riches of this world that promise much and don't always deliver, because this is God's promise, the Lord who promises, he will deliver. Unlike an athletic crown which is only rewarded to the winner, only one person stands on the podium, number one, only they get the crown. The Lord, in his goodness and mercy and grace, has promised the crown of life to all who persevere. Here is encouragement to persevere. Perseverance is necessary, but the point that James makes is that it is so worthwhile. But that blessed promise is only for those who love him. Let me make some concluding comments here. It's very clear from our text that believers are not spared trials in this life. James speaks of trials of many kinds. James doesn't, doesn't enumerate them. He doesn't list them. He just says it's a general thing. We're not spared, my friends, as believers. We're not spared from trials of many kinds. Whether they be financial, economic, whether they be health. If you go down to Victoria Hospital, not too far from here, and you walk down, you're visiting someone, visiting maybe it's a a family member, loved one, you will see Christian and non-Christian side by side. God doesn't promise us heaven on earth, but what he does do, what he reminds us of is that trials under the hand of God promise both present and future blessings of such a magnitude, of such a nature, of so significance and importance that they should generate genuine joy. But it requires patience, perseverance, and prayer, and a spiritual and an eternal perspective. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Christian, Christian, That when you make a commitment and you are justified, we just hit that switch and we are sanctified. Wouldn't be lovely, Simon? (laughs) Just—it's not like that. It's a process. Bearing fruit is a process. It's growth, and we need—you know—we need to be. We need to cut off the dead branches, says Jesus. We need to be weaned from this world. And the struggles and the trials and the hardships, and they they humble us. And if we're true believers, they keep us close to God. They keep us close to God, looking to God. God, have mercy. Give me wisdom. Remind me, Lord, that you're at work in my circumstance. But truth be told that our default response, even as believers to trials, more often than not is one of discouragement rather than joy. We received news the other day, someone who lost a job. And the immediate response is, you know, we went running around high fiving one another. And, and incidentally, I don't think that's what he means, James means about joy. Immediately, we see the problems, we see the potential difficulties. The young mom, young children to look after. Who's going to look after? How's she going to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We see the problems. We don't focus. On God. Questions arise. Lord, where are you? Why me and why now? (laughs) I think it's true to say that we sometimes feel that we're entitled to a good life. An easy life. My friends, you cannot read the New Testament and come away with that picture. Paul says in another case, it is through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul, in that particular context, had been stoned and left for dead. He knew what he was talking about. He understood not just him who had a unique calling, but all of us as believers. James addresses these kinds of questions when trials around are come. God has a purpose. One writer says this, trials are not threats to God's purposes, but a faithful means to achieve that purpose, a godly character. We tend to think the the exact reverse. That somehow this is going to threaten our walk with God. This is going to threaten our eternal destiny. God is present and provides, says James. He gives wisdom generously, generously so to all who ask. And then the blessing, the promise of a blessing of a crown of life to all, all who persevere in the faith. Blessing upon blessing. And my friends, that crown of life is a gift that will keep on giving. Amen? (laughs) For all eternity. Why then do we respond often with a sentiment of discouragement and despair? I think the real enemy of joy, my friends, is double-mindedness. Recently I heard from a Christian leader who travels very extensively in our country, who travels uh, throughout the continent. And uh, he's a Christian leader, preacher, teacher. And he said in his opinion, the biggest threat to the church today is worldliness. Isn't that interesting? Worldliness, double-mindedness that has crept into the church we value creature comforts more than godly growth.
0: Huh?
1: Godly growth is difficult, painful. No, thank you, Lord. Don't sign me up. One writer says this We remember that the first detour from the pathway to heaven encountered by Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress came when Christian was seduced by the counsel of Mr. Worldly Wise Man. We are conformed to the pattern of this world. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money, but we want to. I sometimes say to my students the story of the rich man and Lazarus, who do you want to be, the rich man or Lazarus? And what's the spiritual answer? Lazarus. Good answer. But truth be told, we want to be like the rich man in this world and Lazarus in the world to come. Double-minded people don't want their comfortable lifestyle challenged. Pastor, do you want to become unpopular with your people? Challenge their lifestyles, their comfort, their complacency. They'll be circulating a petition. (laughs) It's human nature. You hear stories about that all the time in church history. And so they're complacent about spiritual growth and maturity, not a priority. They want to continue in their comfortable lifestyle. All that matters to them, oh, I'm going to heaven when I die. See, I want the best of what this world has to offer. And, well, all that matters is I'm going to heaven when I die. I've ticked that box. Such people, says our Lord, will receive nothing from the Lord. No wisdom, no crown of life. My friend's incredibly short-sighted incredibly short sighted is to live for that which is passing away even the rich even the rich with all their money all their resources all their power all their prestige will pass away even as they go about their business the antidote to worldliness is a single-mindedness that prioritizes god and his purposes for the believer God desires your sanctification not your material success. How difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says elsewhere many people eager for wealth have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. God promises heavenly not earthly glory. If that single-mindedness is your priority and your perspective, trials will become a source of genuine joy. Because that is your desire, that is your goal, to become more Christ-like, to honor him. But my friends, you can't do this in your own strength. After all, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in the Word. It's very easy to say these things from the pulpit quite another thing Lord to live it out but Lord this is your word and thank you Lord that you've not left us to our own devices help us we pray to prioritize uh, not worldly glory but your glory help us to desire above all else Lord to become Christ like uh, to bear the fruit of the spirit no matter how difficult we pray Um, Do this work in us, we pray for your name's sake. Amen.